Good morning. My name is Marshall Brown again. Welcome to all of you. We actually have a couple extra distinguished guests here this morning. I'm not going to call all of them out. A couple extra pastors and theologians in the room. But there is one uh, couple that I do want to call out. Uh, they're from very near here, but they've come from very hard. That is Stephen and Karis Rigby. I saw them walk in. Where are Stephen and Karis Rigby? Right here. Uh, Stephen, and Car- Stephen was raised just a few blocks from here in Winnetka, went to New Trier, uh, played soccer, played soccer in college, and then played soccer professionally in Africa, where he now serves as a missionary. He's on home assignment here. And the reason I'm mentioning to you is because almost every week I get an email from Stephen Rigby telling me that he's praying for me. So I want to honor him uh, for praying for me every week. Thank you. But let me pray for uh, us. God, we come to, uh, may we come to a highlight reel. We come to truths that are unspeakable, truths that uh, certainly are beyond my ability to communicate. But God, they are lovely truths, deep truths. And so guys, we come before Romans 8 this morning. I pray for all of us, those of us who name the name of Jesus and know him, those who are skeptical and don't know, those who are hurting, that we would find hope and healing as we look at this, your word from Romans chapter 8. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. The Beverly Hillbillies. Now, if you don't know the show, The Beverly Hillbillies, which I'm imagining some of you younger, you probably know the premise. If you don't, the premise of The Beverly Hillbillies is a poor working family from the Ozarks, mountain people, uh, who are just dirt poor. Is it where I come from, they call them po folk, right? Very poor people, literally hillbillies. Uh, the Clampets, Jed Clampett. I won't, I tempted to sing, but I won't. But they discover oil on their land in the mountains, in the Ozarks, which is to say they are fabulously rich. They have been fabulously rich. They just didn't know it until they discovered the oil. And so what do the hillbillies do, the Clampets? They move to where the rich people are. They move from the Ozarks to Beverly Hills. And they comically, that's the premise, try to learn to live like the rich people that they are. We're in the midst of a sermon series we've called Amazing Grace. We've defined grace as unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God. And that that grace changes us. It doesn't leave us where we are. It actually changes us. It makes us more like Christ. Now for Advent, these weeks leading up to Christmas and looking forward to the second coming of Christ, we are in Romans chapter 8. And as I said last week, Romans chapter 8 is like the, Romans is like the Himalayas of the Bible. It's like the high point theologically of the scriptures. And Mount Everest is Romans chapter 8. This, in many ways, in some ways these verses, although next week is pretty good too, uh, but these verses are a high point, if not the high point of all of the scriptures. And as we approach Romans 8... If you are in Christ, this is like being a Beverly hillbilly, trying to make sense of the vast wealth that is now ours, trying to change not by works or obligation, but to be changed by God's grace. And for us, the wealth is not financial. It is much greater than that. It is relational wealth. It is, if you are in Christ, you have been adopted by God himself. He calls you his son, his daughter, his child. All of us who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, God's children. Adoption. Let me read to you what a couple of my heroes have said about adoption in the 20th and 21st century. Sinclair Ferguson, I love listening to Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, 
The notion that we are the children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation, the goal of redemption. And then one of the more famous Christian books written in the 20th century, J.I. Packer's Knowing God, he says this. It's J.I. Packer's Magnum Opus. He says this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much that person makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his and her worship and prayers, the whole outlook on life will be different. It means they do not understand Christianity very well at all. So today, adoption and God as our Father. Now, I can't speak of this without a couple of preliminaries before we get into this, because I realize for that most of us, many of us, the word Father is, a, is an attractive word. It's a very good word. We have good fathers, loving fathers, and that is to, to consider God as our Father is at some level easy. But that's not true for all of us. Some in this room have had fathers who left a lot to be desired. And for, that, for some of you, that is putting it mildly. And I am so sorry. But for all of us, my hope is today that we can again see a little glimpse of the perfections and the love of our perfect heavenly father. And understand adoption, to understand adoption, we must understand the Roman context. Right? The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Rome. And this concept of adoption that he is using is the Roman conception of adoption. So we have to understand this. Uh, let me say a few things about that. This is from F.F. F. Bruce. The Roman context, a person, often a beloved slave, would deliberately, uh, would deliberately choose, would be liberally chosen, I should say, by an adoptive father to perpetuate the father's name and to inherit his estate. He was completely equal to his biological sons and might well enjoy the father's affections more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. To be adopted in a Roman context was to have all your debts paid, your freedom granted, and to be given a new name and empowered to live out new obligations. Now let me say something real quickly about the gendered language. Why is it not translated sons and daughters or children? Two things real quickly. First, they are different words. Look with me at verses 14 and 15 and then verses 16 and 17. This actually is a pretty literal translation, the ESV, the English Standard Version. In verses 14 and 15, it is literally translated sons. That is the Greek word hoi. Verses 16 and 17, which you see translated children, that is the Greek word techna. Okay? So the ESV is taking a quite literal translation. And the reason is probably the second. The reason they do that is probably the second reason. Because in the Roman context, sonship was a status given to males in Rome. Now the radical thing here is that the Apostle Paul is applying the concept of Roman adoption, which in Rome was exclusively for males. He's applying that concept to all people, men and women. Which is to say this text is honoring to women in the same way that Ephesians 5 honors men when it calls all of us the bride of Christ. These are metaphors from a specific contest, and I argue they are honoring to all. But it's very appropriate to think of sons and daughters and children. But that's the reason that the text reads the way it does. Now this passage, we're going to dive in here, it is, it is dense. It is rich. I was literally last night at 11 p.m., I was still learning things about this passage, which makes it dangerous for you as a listener. But I, there's a lot to cover, and I want to highlight four things. We cannot cover everything that's in this text. I want to say that adoption means acceptance, 
Adoption means empowerment. Adoption means access. And adoption means inheritance. First, adoption means acceptance. Read with me again verses 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And I owe this to uh, Paige Brown, who's my sister-in-law. And she notes this, that the thing that is most powerful about adoption today or 2,000 years ago, the most powerful thing about adoption is this, someone wants you. Someone chooses you. Someone wants to make you their own child. Someone has looked at you and said, I want to give my everything, my name, my inheritance, everything. I want you. I accept you. A friend of mine who is my age found out this fall that she was adopted. I mean, she knows she's adopted, but this fall she found out who her biological parents were for the first time. She's my age. This whole new world has opened up to her. Both of her biological parents are living. She has half-siblings. She's in contact with all of them now. But I know this person's adoptive father. And I kept on wondering, what does the adoptive father think about all of this? The most amazing thing, the adoptive father is not threatened. He is supportive. And why? Because he loves his daughter. He wanted her. He chose her. He knows her. And he wants her, despite the threat it might be to his relationship, to feel the fullness of a relationship with her biological parents. God fr- God. Friends, God wants you. He chose you. He accepts you. God likes you. God enjoys you. He thinks nothing of giving you all that is his, making you his heirs. He calls you his sons, his daughters, his children. I think, and I think I read this somewhere uh, but that verses 14 to 17 uh, are actually, I think they're a theological retelling of the prodigal son. Do you remember the prodigal son, the story that Jesus told in Luke 15? Jesus tells it in narrative style. Paul is here telling it in theological style. Do you remember the story? The son who wanted his inheritance to go spend on wild living. So he asked his dad, can I have my inheritance to go live like I want to live? And he takes it and he moves away. He spends all the money in crazy wild living, and when he is finally impoverished, he comes to his senses, and he thinks to himself, my father has slaves, he'll accept me back as a slave, I'll just go to where he is, and he will take care of me. So he goes back, and he offers to his father, I will be your servant. But what does the father do? The father runs to him. The father puts a new coat on him. He puts a ring on his finger. He throws a party for him. He gives him, he says, you are my son. I fully accept you. The Christian gospel is you are unconditionally accepted because God has called you his son, his daughter, his child. And because he has chosen you, nothing can break that bond. You have the full acceptance of your heavenly father. But this acceptance does not leave us where we are. This, it does not leave us where this actual acceptance, it actually empowers us, empowers us to live. Notice Verse 15, what the contrast to the spirit of adoption is. What is the contrast? Somebody say it out loud, actually. What was the contrast? Spirit of what? Fear. The spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Paul says that when you are adopted, you are delivered from your fear. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in his, uh, the message, verses 14 and 15. Just listen. 
to these words. This is Eugene Peterson paraphrases verses 14 to 15. Don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in this life for us, nothing at all. The best thing you can do is give it a decent burial and get on with a new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It is the adventuresome expectation of greeting God like a child. Father, what is next? You see, friends, to be adopted is to be empowered to go forth. There are things to do and places to see. To not be fearful. Fear is so powerful. Isn't fear powerful? I think it's actually the most powerful negative emotion we face. And, and that's why fear sells. Fear wins elections. Fear works. And this is, you know, fear always sounds smart too, by the way. It smells and sounds smart. You know, but they say when you're afraid, you're going to fight or flight. I think actually it's more appropriate for the modern context to say that what we do with fear is we either self-protect or we self-promote. That's what fear does. It's fight or flight, self-protect or self-promote. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle John speaks of the perfect love that casts out fear. I love that image. Perfect love casts out fear. Paul is saying here, we have not been given a spirit of fear. We have been given a spirit of adoption, acceptance, empowerment. And whenever someone who is united to Christ is afraid, whenever you're afraid, it's because you are not believing something right about God. When you're afraid, it's because you're not accepting that you are God's beloved child. This is a very imperfect illustration. Um, I, uh, I have not yet read Bono, the lead singer of U2, has a new uh, memoir out called Surrender. I've not yet read it, but I've read some of the interviews, watched some of the interviews online. And if you know the story of Bono and U2, you know that Bono has a famously rocky relationship with his father. His mother died when he was 14, and he and his dad never really got along. And I love Bono. He's so self-deprecating. I don't know what I think of him, really. But he says this. He says, there are very few paths to being a stadium rock star, okay? There are very few paths to having 80,000 people look at you. and have. If you ever know U2, it's amazing. It's so powerful. But 80,000 people looking at you, and you can move the crowd how you will. There's very few paths to that. And he says there's two paths. One, not having the approval of your dad and looking for it in 80,000 people's eyes. Or having the unconditional acceptance of your father, knowing that you've got nothing to fear because he loves you. And so you can go out. There are things to do and places to go. Because God loves and accepts you. There are things to do. There's places to go. What next, dad? What next, papa? Adoption it doesn't just give us this acceptance and we have this warm, cozy feeling. It powers us. I'm not saying it powers you to stand in front of 80,000 people. But it does power you to do something. To live into that, though, you must name your fear. You can't just say, oh, I don't want to be fearful anymore. You have to. Fear is so powerful. It's so pervasive. You have to name your fear. And I actually want to say to you, you have to name your fear every single day. Because there's the ultimate fears, the kind of the fears behind the fears that all of us have. But there's also the proximate fears, the fears of just today. What am I afraid about today? I've started doing this every morning. Like I write in my journal, what am I afraid of today? It's powerful. Try this. What am I afraid of today? Does it have something to do with money, not having enough, health? Does it have to do with I'm afraid of dying alone? I'm afraid of not being enough, not measuring up, 
Not having the approval of dad, mom, spouse, child. What is your fear? Because you have to name it so that it can be pushed out by the accepting, loving adoption of our God and Father. If you're going to live an empowered, adopted life, you're going to have to experience the death to your fear. You've got to smother it every morning with God's accepting, empowering, adopting love. Because if you do, you'll know that you have nothing to fear because you have nothing to lose and even nothing to gain. Now, if you're going to live an empowered life, you're going to need access. You're going to need access to the Father. You're going to need to be able to talk to Him. We've seen how you're accepted, empowered. Real briefly, you also, adoption means access. Verse 15, I love this. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We cry, it's like this cry of the heart, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic Greek, Father is from the Greek, right? But if you are in Christ, you have unfettered, unlimited, unconditional access to your Father. I have a seven-year-old who's sick at home. He had no qualms coming into my bed last night, waking me up on sermon night. Why? He knows he has my heart, and therefore he has access. He can talk to me and ask me anything. One of the most iconic pictures of the 20th century is John F. Kennedy Jr. playing under his father's desk in the Oval Office during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That is, who gets to talk to the president during the Cuban Missile Crisis? His son. He has access. And friends, you have that access. You can take whatever it is to your God. You have access. And it means everything. Christian maturity. Christian maturity looks actually like becoming more and more like a child. Taking your fears, your sorrows, your hurts, your sadness, your joys, your guilt. Taking it all to your Heavenly Father. Telling him what is on your heart, what is on your mind. One of the most influential men that I have known died this past year. His name needs to be honored, Dick O'Farrell. And Dick O'Farrell, I think he was formed by what he did for a living. When he was a young man in his 20s, Dick O'Farrell bought a camp for boys, a Christian boys camp. And so all of his life was spent working with children. And there's something about in a world where everybody is seeking influence. Everybody wants to be an influence and promote themselves. Dick O'Farrell, because of what he did for a living, learned to become like a child more and more. And I think that's true of my friend Walter Gass, too. He's becoming more and more like a child. Abba, Father, Daddy, I can take anything. I have the access so we've seen the acceptance, the empowerment, the access. But this brings us, and I didn't know what to call this point. I'm simply going to call it adoption gives us an inheritance. Verse 17, if you are children, then you're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are God's heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ, which is to say everything that is God's is ours. Everything that is Christ is ours. The primary uh, inheritance that is ours, well, it's actually God himself. And he gives himself to us. Which is to say, because we have that inheritance, we're in the family. And to be in the family is to be like the family. To bear the family resemblance. To have a family likeness. And it's specifically to be like our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Family likeness. 
Some of you would remember the uh, film, I loved it, uh, The Blind Side. Based on a true story, The Blind Side is about Michael Orr, a 300-pound African-American man who ended up playing in the NFL, being a very successful football player. But he had an impoverished childhood, but he got the attention of this family, this white family, wealthy family, who adopted him. Okay, they adopted him to their family, Michael Orr, The Blind Side. And this family loved and attended for generations the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, okay? And so when Michael Orr, this great football player, decides to play football at Ole Miss, everybody's like, Okay, well, what, they go to the family. Well, why did you adopt this young man? Is it so that your, this now son uh, could go to your favorite school and make their favorite school a better football team? Is that why? I mean, the NCAA, the, the, the uh, governing uh, or, uh, authorities for this true, got involved with this uh, recruitment because of the connection. But finally, after lots of drama, lots of back and forth, somebody finally goes to Michael Orr and says, why do you want to go to Ole Miss? He said, that's where my family goes. That's where my family goes. I go where my family goes. I have the family likeness. You are adopted into Christ's family. And to be in his family is to be like Jesus and to do what he does. I got some good news and bad news. It's actually all good news, but it's going to sound like bad news at first. What does Jesus do? He suffers and he is glorified. Look closely with me at verse 17. This is very dense, okay? There's a good story coming, I promise, okay? This is very dense. Stay with me, because it says, look, I'm quoting, heirs with Christ, suffer with Christ, suffer with him, and then be glorified with him. That is a really good translation. Because in the Greek, all of those have the same, all of those heirs, suffer, and glorified, they all have the same preposition in front of them, with. Or you could say co-heirs, co-sufferers, co-glorified. Okay, preacher. What does it look like to suffer with Christ? What does it look like to be suffer with Christ and be glorified with him? Now, Paul answers that question in the next paragraph with a handful of images. Okay, stay with me. I promise this is worth it. Okay, he answers the question, what does it look like to be a co-sufferer and a co-glorified? Look at verse 22, the first image. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Now, that is a great image. The pains of childbirth, right? Because there's great pain followed by great joy. Uh, my wife's labor uh, was 55 hours long. Um, I was in the delivery ward. We were in the delivery ward for a very long time. And if you're in the delivery ward for a very long time, you overhear a lot of women giving birth. Which is to say, you overhear a lot, I mean, howling in pain. Like pain I've never been close to. Just howling. And then it stops. <laughs> And there's joy and laughter and tears of joy, right? It's the perfect metaphor because the suffering and the glory are intertwined. You can't have one without the other. Make sure you don't, this is a whole other sermon, but glory is not the compensation for suffering. Glory is not the compensation for suffering. Glory grows out of suffering. And why? Another sermon, but let me just say it. This is what happened with Jesus. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Jesus emptied himself. He became one of us. He suffered. And therefore, he was glorified, exalted. But let's look at the next image. There's actually two more images. We'll kind of combine them here. And we're actually going to sing these verses. Katie wrote a song about this. We're going to sing these verses in just a moment. It's going to be great. I saw some of you sing this before the service when they were practicing. Let me read again. I'm going to read all 23 to 25. We're going to sing these verses. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait Eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now the image here is of first fruits of the harvest. Okay, This is the first pass of the harvest. Okay, The first fruit is taken from the field, but the main harvest is still in the field. That's what we have. We have the first fruits, but not the fullness. We have a taste, but not the fullness. Which is saying that we live between the two comings of Christ. Jesus has come. He has died. He has been raised. He has been ascended. He has sent down his spirit. We live between. But we don't yet have the fullness. Jesus is coming again to make all things new, to wipe away all the tears from us. We live between those two realities, okay? So we have a taste, but not the fullness. Jesus is going to come again. He's going to make all things right. He's going to wipe away all the tears from our eyes. And so, look with me, verse, uh, what is it, verse 23. We groan inwardly. Anybody feel like groaning? Yes. We groan inwardly. Why? Because things are not the way they're supposed to be. The creation itself, verse 20, has been subjected to futility. Creation itself is groaning. We live amidst wars, natural disasters that kill hundreds of thousands of people. We live with bad news. We live with distrust in countries and communities. We live in a world where things grow old and die. One of the saddest things I have to tell you about my rituals, the last thing I do before coming to the sanctuary to preach is I look at my phone to see if there's any bad news in the world. Is there something we need to know about that we can pray for? That's the world we live in, filled with futility and groaning. But it's not just creation. It is us. it's, uh, It's us. Look with me at verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly our lives are filled with sickness and frustration sleepless nights and bad days aching hearts and unmet longings we groan but we don't just groan if you belong to Christ if you are adopted you don't just groan inwardly you also wait eagerly groaning inwardly waiting equally we have the first fruits. And what does it look like to wait eagerly? It's Christmas season. Waiting eagerly is like having a seven-year-old on Christmas Eve. You just can't wait. But that image, that, take this image with you. Verse 23, groaning inwardly and waiting eagerly. That, friends, is a picture of the Christian life. It is a picture of Advent. It is a picture of hope. You feel that, Yes. You're groaning inwardly, and you're waiting eagerly for Jesus to make all things new. Now, one of the reasons this passage is so powerful, at least for me, is it's so primal. It's so guttural at the gut level. Think about this. In verse 15, we have this instinctual cry, Abba, Father. And then three times, this is the New Testament, it's supposed to be sophisticated, three times. In this passage, we have the word groan. In verse 22, the creation is groaning. In verse 23, we are groaning. And then in this tender image that I don't even know what to do with, in verse 26, the Spirit of God himself is groaning for us. Let me say that again. God groans for you. (laughs) That is the spirit of adoption. God himself groans for you. He actually, the prayers that you don't know what to make sense of, 
He prays them for you. The Holy Spirit does. Jesus Christ, this is the little theology of prayer. Jesus Christ makes prayer, uh, perfect our prayers at, the heavens, at, heavens, at heaven's throne. But the Holy Spirit actually speaks for us. He intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. It's so instinctual. So we can talk about it all day. Adopting, giving you acceptance. Adopting, empowering you. Giving you access and inheritance so that you can suffer with Christ and be glorified with him. But like I said last week about the Lord's Supper, at some level, adoption in Romans 8 cannot be understood. They have to be experienced. Are you experiencing this more and more? Do you get it? Do you cry out, Abba, Father? Do you groan inwardly and wait eagerly? Russell Moore is a name known to some of you. He is a uh, well-known ethicist, theologian, and writer. He wrote this story about uh, over a decade ago in, uh, I believe it started in Christianity Today. You can find it several places on the internet. Russell Moore. The creepiest sound I have ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would someday become our sons. The horror was not the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the rage, the, the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? This place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that come from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth. The crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry. Because eventually, infants learn to stop crying if no one responds to their calls for food, comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boy's room. Little Sergey, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal, czar-like. But neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they could not understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Marie and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the moment we arrived upon our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye. Is by law, we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his career and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and a mother. I will never forget how the hairs on my arm stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck, maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament. Passages I had memorized in vacation Bible school as a child. I was surprised how little I had gotten it until now. Do you get it? 
No, you don't. But you can grow in it. By the spirit of adoption, we cry, Abba, Father. He loves us. Amen. Let me pray. Our great God, we don't know what to do with love like this, acceptance like this. I pray that by the power of your spirit, that as we groan inwardly, you would testify to us of our adoption as daughters and sons, as children of our heavenly king. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.